Conference championship games are in the books right now. We do have our Super Bowl teams ready to go. We're not going to be talking about that today on Inside the Pile on the podcast. Chuck Zada and Mark Schofield here. We've got next week to talk a little bit about the Super Bowl. This week, we're going to start digging into some of our pre-draft looks, uh, talking a little bit about the Senior Bowl that is going on down in Mobile right now. I'm going to talk a little bit about scouting some kickers. We also do have uh, some special special news to announce that uh, is related to Mark Schofield's book. And so I'd like to welcome in Mark at this point. Oh, good morning, my friend. How are you, buddy? Doing well. I'm doing well. It's uh, an, an exciting time here. Obviously, we've got the Super Bowl coming up next week. We've got the Senior Bowl this week, and then it's right into draft season. So, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, do things kind of slow down as you get, you know, past that game? Well, I don't know. I mean, it looks like we've got a full slate going through the uh, the next few weeks here. Yeah, it's funny. When we started Inside the Pylon, which launched actually the Monday after the Week 1 games last season, I remember talking to people about, oh, you know, we're going to be starting this football website. And they said, well, what are you going to talk about once the season is over? People talk about football 365. It is a year-round game. It is a year-round business. So once the Super Bowl ends, we are into draft season, which officially i think kicks off this week though we're recording this on tuesday the measurements and the weigh-ins are going on right now in mobile and my twitter feed chuck i don't know about yours is filled with hand sizes and weights and wind spans and it's crazy there's 800 people watching guys get measured i just want to know about foot sizes foot sizes is, is that actually something that plays a role in kicking in scouting kickers uh no <laughs> No, <laughs> no. It's as long as long they as the ball. everything else, so I as, figured, why not? As, as long as the ball comes off the foot cleanly, I don't care how big the foot is. It could be a stub. It could be a you know a duck paddle. I don't care what it is. As long as it works, I'm fine with it. Doesn't matter to me. But Mark, before we go any further, we got uh we got something we have to get off our chests. Okay. Oh, what's that? We have gone through the entire regular season. And we have been tweeting to Adele and Taylor Swift, trying to get them to like just one of our tweets. It has not happened. It has not. It has not happened. And this means that next week, to open our show, you and I are going to be doing a duet of Aerosmith's Don't Want to Miss a Thing. That's horrific news, man. That is just horrific. I mean, people, you couldn't have helped us out with this? You really wanted Chuck and I to sing? We had, we had 19 weeks that this was going on, and I know I sent a whole lot more than 19 tweets. I got nothing back, and so it looks like we will be singing next week, Mark. So mark your calendars, folks. It is, uh, it's about that time. Fantastic, people. Thanks so much for that. Really appreciate it. We love you. Don't worry about it. Let's uh, yeah. let's All start. Fun. Let's dig into this Senior Bowl a little bit here. We've uh, got a few minutes to chat on it, and uh, when we talk about the prospects that we are going to be uh, seeing down there, and prospects that you're excited about, where where do you start off in terms of top of the list here? I mean, I does, guess it, does it start with of, Carson Wentz? <laughs> I think we kind of have to. And let's put let's put this out there anyway. I was going to be excited to see him anyway before the hype machine really got rolling, but it is. It's almost like a downhill snowball that is out of control at this point. It started, you know, there was definitely some excitement when he came back to play in the FCS championship game against Jacksonville State. He had this the wrist injury, had surgery on that, comes back for that game, looked solid, definitely had some rust, but people got to see him in person. And that's when the buzz really started to build. I know, I think it was Dane Brugler who went to Frisco to see him in that game, said, look, the ball just, you know, it flies out of his hand. You know, he passes the eye test for me. Then we had Jeff Risden last week who was down 
uh, at the Shrine Game in St. Petersburg. He was on our Quick Kicks podcast last week, and he had tweeted out that, look, I'm hearing from people he might once not might even make it to number four where, where Dallas is picking, which seems to be possibly a good fit because he can replace Tony Romo. So the buzz is real. He just measured in at Mobile, 6'5", 233, with uh, something like a 78-inch wingspan. I mean, I'm reading on Twitter right now that people are like, this is just one big dude. So the hype machine is real. Now we'll see what he looks like in practice. That's going to be the next thing because even though he's had a great career at North Dakota State, played and won two FCS championship games, he's going to see a little bit better talent or perhaps even a lot better talent this week in practice than he's seen before. Yeah, and, and at least from my perspective, and look, you're the, the quarterback expert as far as I'm concerned. At least from my perspective, just seeing how we adjust to that different speed of the game there, because obviously the change from FCS to FBS, it's 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 a big shift there. It's not as big as the one to the NFL, but you still want to see how he handles just the additional game speed that he's going to see and the additional practice speed he sees this week. Yeah, and it's not even so much the game because the meat of Senior Bowl week is the week of practice, and we'll see pretty quickly how well he adjusts or doesn't adjust to the speed because he'll be throwing the receivers that are faster. So if he's slow on getting the ball out, if he's if the timing is off on timing routes, on out routes, on post routes, on things like that, we'll have to look for that and see if, okay, is he going to be able to adjust? The the people kind of knock the FCS and say, look, you know, there's a talent drop off, but FCS programs are better and better each year, especially with the scholarship numbers that we're seeing at the FBS level. The talent filters down, and with the ability of people to scout you know, nationwide, all these teams can scout nationwide. Players that are good get found, and if they fall through the cracks of the FBS level, they'll end up on an FCS roster. He's played in two FCS championship games, so he's seen the best competition there is at that level, and now it's just can he do it at the next level. Yeah, and, and in particular, when we talk about some of the players that are in uh, the NFL that came from FCS schools, you know, you're talking about some guys that ended up having pretty good careers. Marcus Colston, Vincent Jackson, Jari Evans, Jared Allen, Tony Romo, Joe Flacco. I mean, there is talent there. It's obviously not as much depth, but you talk about it, and you've, you've even got a couple, uh, you know, quarterbacks who are above average in the NFL there in Romo and Flacco. So you do have the ability to find skill position players coming from that level. Yeah, and Flacco is a good case. I mean, he was a guy that lost the starting job at Pittsburgh to, I think it was Tyler Palco, um, ended up transferring to Delaware, had a great career for the for the Blue Hens, um, won a Super Bowl. Tony Romo was a guy that's been to the playoffs. And, you know, that, that Dallas team, I think, was a playoff team until he got injured. And it would be interesting to see if, FCS quarterback gets drafted to replace an FCS quarterback in Tony Romo. But Wentz is just one of a number of guys who can have big weeks here. One of his teammates, Joe Haig, uh, an offensive tackle, measured in today at something like 6'6", 306. That's another big guy. He's somebody that many teams will be taking a look at, I think, as this week goes on. Who are some other guys quarterbacks any other position that you're looking to see well I think I mean the quarterbacks you've written an awful lot about Dak Prescott he's going to be a guy that I'm interested to see what he shows while he's down there I think you start to get into some of the other positions and I had mentioned previously to you uh, Dan Vitale the fullback from Northwestern 
been used in a number of different roles this year, and while the fullback position has fallen out of favor in the NFL, I'm really interested just to see what he's able to show in these practices here, and if he shows that he has the skill set to move into uh, you know, a little bit different role, potentially becoming an inline tight end or something along those lines in the NFL. Obviously, doesn't have quite the size that you'd like from your prototypical pass catching or blocking tight end right now at only about six foot two, not the six five to six seven range that we're seeing from a lot of these guys now. But I'm interested to see what he's able to do there. Obviously, I come back to kickers as well. You know, I I talk about uh, you know two of my favorite kickers in this draft, Ross Martin and uh, Kaime Fairbairn from uh, Duke and UCLA, respectively. Generally, I don't advise drafting kickers early, if at all, but these are still guys who I think, for teams that have had problems in their kicking game, can come in and make an impact over the course of a season. And that's something that I think, whether it's in the you know sixth, seventh round, whether you look at these guys as day three selections or simply as UDFAs, undrafted free agents, I think that there are, there's talent in the in the kickers that are coming out this year beyond just Roberto Aguayo, who's obviously head and shoulders. I think the number one uh, number one prospect coming out for kickers this year. Yeah, and another position group that I'm really curious to see is this wide receiver position group. There are some names that are going to be down there. Sterling Shepard, wide receiver from Oklahoma. I know that there are some people out there that really like his game, like his route and running ability in particular. Um, he's a name that I think people might really hear more and more about as this process goes forward. Another guy I'm excited to see is Tajay Sharp, the wide receiver from UMass. Um, he was down at the Shrine game. Um, turned some heads there and earned himself an invite to Mobile for this game. So that's a good sign for him. Braxton Miller, I mean, that's a name that yep. has kind of kind of fallen under the radar a bit, was formerly a quarterback at The Ohio State University and got moved to wide receiver this year. Showed flashes of brilliance, I'd say, particularly change of direction, uh, moving on the field, making cuts with the ball in his hands. That's a guy that could turn some heads this week as well. I'm interested to see also, and maybe this is under the radar, maybe just I haven't been paying attention to the right people here, but Kenyon Drake, you know, talking right. about what he's able to do. I've seen, you know, you talk about uh, the Alabama running backs here, and obviously all of the focus uh, has been, you know, away from Drake really. But you wonder if he's a guy that could help himself with a pretty good showing here, you know, showing off some of his speed and quickness and his ability to, uh, you know, work in space there. He's a guy that I think, you know, has the potential to have a good week as well. Another running back that people should be looking for is Kenneth Dixon out of Louisiana Tech, a guy that I know, for example, Matt Waldman's very high on. Um, other people are very high on him as well. He's a guy that I think might really turn some heads. He's I don't know what he measured in at today. I mean, roster-wise, he was looked at at 5'10", 212. That's kind of a powerful built guy, at least on paper. We'll see how he looks this week as well. Um, and again, circling back to the quarterbacks a bit, there are two guys that I haven't really dug into yet. Jeff Driscoll, uh, Kenneth Dixon's teammate at Louisiana Tech, formerly of the University of Florida, as well as Brandon Allen, the Arkansas quarterback. Those are two guys that I haven't really dug into, so I'm basically going in blank slate on those guys. So I'm curious to see uh, what those guys look at this week during practice. Yeah, it's going to be a full week. Mark and I are going to be heading down there uh, on Wednesday, so we will be down for uh, really the last three and a half, four days of the week there, and we will be doing some reporting from uh, down there, so we'll be filling you in with what we see there. Uh, but let's do a little bit of glossary talk here, Mark. Ooh, glossary talk. Love it. What do we got this week? What's on tap? I'm going to go, uh, we're going to stick with, we're going to move to a little special teams today. Ooh, love and, it. What do we got? Well, we're going to talk a little bit of special team statistics just to make sure that we Ooh. get all of our bases covered. I don't think we've done this yet no, this year. No, we haven't. 
Special team statistics, I have a major problem with uh, most punting statistics. And that problem is I don't think they effectively measure how well a punter actually punts. Okay, so did you put something together? I put a little something together, and, oh, and I boy. call it it's, – it's a statistic. I've seen variations on this uh, in a couple different places. I call it target, distant punt, tar- target distance punted, and uh, abbreviated as TDP. And pretty much what it tells you is how much of a – Uh, how much of the target distance a punter covers in any situation. And the reason this is important is because if you see a punter who's punting from an opponent's 45-yard line, for example, and he hits a 30-yard punt, it doesn't make sense to penalize him statistically because he hit a shorter punt in a situation that called for it. Okay. Likewise, if a punter is punting from his own 10-yard line, if he hits just a 40-yard punt, well, that might be good in a short field situation, but from your own 10-yard uh, line, well, you're only getting that ball out to midfield. And so what I, what I tried to do is build a stat that says, okay, let's factor in field position. And what it does is you simply, in, inside of your own 40-yard line, in what's called an open field punting situation, you take what is the league average over the time period that you're measuring, and you set that as the target distance. So, for example, in 2015, the NFL average on open field punts was 48 yards. So you set 48 yards as the target distance. So if the punter hits 48 on the nose, he's covered 100% of the target distance. If he hits 24 yards, he's only covered 50% of the target distance. If he hits uh, 50 yards, he's hit 104%. So what this is, it's a percentage representation of how far a punter is kicking based on the specific situation. Okay? If you're going for a punt uh, in a pin-deep situation, a short field situation, anywhere from a team's own 41-yard line and forward, what we're talking about there, you want to be targeting the 10-yard line of the opposing team. Any further than that, you risk the punt bouncing back into the end zone and going for a touchback. Any shorter than that, you're not necessarily maximizing distance. So it's the distance between the line of scrimmage and that 10-yard line. That is your target distance that you're trying to cover there. So from the 50, it's a 40-yard target distance. That's what you try to cover. If you cover 30 yards of it, you've covered 75%. That's your TDP. If you cover all 40 yards, 100% TDP. Did I break it down well enough? I think you broke it down. Now, have you gotten a chance to kind of dig into any of the current punters in the game looking at this statistic? I'm, I'm going through right now. I'm doing my end-of-year review. I'm through about 15 of them. The vast majority of punters are in a pretty tight range, usually anywhere between about, uh, on, the, on the high end, about 103%, and on the low end, about 97 And the reason for that is that if they weren't that good, you're not going to see them in the NFL. So I'm still digging through, looking to see where the outliers end up being when it's all said and done. I can tell you that on the open field punting, uh, this is something that I do have all of the data complete on now. Uh, Brett Kern from the Tennessee Titans was the league leader. He averaged 108% of the league average, over 51 yards per punt coming out of his own end. So just a big leg from Kern there. And it's, uh, you know, something I think you can, you know, a lot of people have said, well, it's just because Tennessee gets to punt a lot. But look, there's an awful lot of teams that punted a decent amount. The Broncos, for example, had 84 punts this year. And Britton Colquitt, the punter there, only averaged about 97% of his target distance coming out of his own zone. So were you you surprised to see that number on Colquitt, given that he punts in Denver at least half the time or so? A little bit. He just doesn't have the strongest leg, but he has an absolutely phenomenal directional game that makes up for it. He puts just about everything outside the numbers wherever he wants to, going left, going right. 
doesn't really matter for him. So a little bit surprising there. Uh, but, you know, again, it, it really is more dependent on the punter. The air resistance, you know, can do a little bit, and the, the thin air can do a little bit. But it's, uh, it's not the most important thing. I think it continues to come down to leg strength there. So um, let's talk, Mark. You've got... You've got some big news here, and uh, I some big news. This is uh, Mark. Mark Schofield is now an author. I am an author. It's, that's weird to say, but yeah, I am. Yeah, I Mark, wrote a book, people. Mark Schofield now is a published author. We do have a link up on InsideThePylon.com to go and buy his book. It is available already in paperback. We're going to have ebook versions coming out shortly. Uh, the book is titled Seventeen Drives. And Mark, I want you to just first and foremost talk about you know what you were actually trying to accomplish in writing this book. Well, it's interesting. What I'm trying to do is give readers both a micro look at not even one game, just basically one drive, play by play, that changed the course of a game. Um, so, for example, the opening chapter of this book is a look at the Alabama Wisconsin game that kind of kicked off the season, and a drive from that game where Alabama really extended their lead and you know solidified the fact that they were going to win that season opener. So you look at that drive and you break, kind of break down play by play the X's and O's of it, how the drive came together, the different things that Alabama did on offense each play, the different ways that Wisconsin tried to stop this drive or prevent Alabama from scoring. So then, you know, when you're sitting down, you look at that first chapter and it goes, okay, that's how Alabama won their opening game. That's week one. Well, I do a different game from each week. And when you so you've got the micro level of each a game, a drive from each week. But then when you kind of step back and look at all 17, that tells you basically the story of this season, both from a global perspective and how, you know, Oklahoma, Clemson, um, Alabama and Michigan State got to the playoffs. And then you go through the semifinals in the national championship game. So you get both the X's and O's micro level at how drives come together, at how the schemes come together for teams how defenses try to stop offenses in the college game, what kind of college schemes, college offenses these teams are running. And then you get kind of a global perspective to sort of look at the entire season and how it came together. So that's really what I was trying to accomplish. It's a little bit different. Nobody's really tried something like this on this micro and macro level. Alex Kirby, who's been on our podcast before, and has kind of written a lot of X's and O's books, and it's kind of been an inspiration, a number, one of many inspirations for me, at least as trying to, trying to do this he's looked at drives he's looked at x's and o's in book form but this is taking a little bit of a step further to kind of try to tell the story of an entire season and it's not just clemson games oklahoma games alabama michigan state there's notre dame stuff in here there's a look at paxton lynch and a drive he led on a thursday night that everybody was watching because it was the only college game that night and it kind of rocketed hem towards the top of draft board so you get a lot of different sort of storylines woven in and it's just, again, just a look at the micro and the macro of the college football season. Yeah, and, and Mark, this is it's not a short book by any means. It ends up coming out to about 320 pages, uh, including we've got, you know, there's diagrams throughout the whole uh, book. And talk to me a little bit about uh, the process of using diagrams in this book, because it's not simply one play, one diagram. Talk to me about kind of how you show the development of the play through the use of these diagrams. Right. And if you've read some of the drive work that I've done, or even some of the like single play breakdowns that I've done on our website, InsideThePylon.com, I try to give readers both sort of the pre-play, you know, what, how the teams were aligned what the quarterback might have seen before the play from the defensive alignment and the fronts and the secondary sort of give you that pre-snap 
photograph, that context for each play. And then each, so each play has usually three diagrams. So you have the pre-snap alignment, then you've got the play art showing you what the offense was trying to do, what they were trying to accomplish, the scheme they were using, the route concept they were using, the run scheme that they were trying to employ and then basically sort of a play flow one sometimes even two maybe even three depending on you know if it was a long play with multiple cuts by a running back i try to show you how that run came together where you know he juked a linebacker at the second level and then broke into the secondary and broke a tackle on a you know a tackle attempt from a free safety so it's really not just words that are getting thrown at you this book's not just a wall of text it's also a visual way a visual representation of each play so when you get done you read a chapter you can kind of visualize how that entire drive came together now one thing that i do have to ask you about here is you know i've read through this entire book at this point and obviously you cover 17 different drives but one that stands out, chapter 14, it's about three-quarters of the way through this book. Uh, it is probably one of the most impressive pieces just on its own that I've, I've read just about the game of football. Talk to me a little bit about this chapter, who's involved in it, and what exactly happens here. Right. Well, before I get to that, I have to shout out huge thank yous to you, Chuck, and you know Phil Kibbe, Dave McCullough, uh, John Harrington, Craig Cracker, Andres Weiberg, the, all the editors and inside the pylon, I'm, I'm sure I've forgotten a couple, um, who did such a great job editing this book. Peter Hodges, uh, another great editor, who poured through page by page, line by line, word by word to, to make sure that you know my message was really conveyed and coming through. Um, and they all did yeoman's work on this chapter 14, which is um, that Michigan State-Iowa Big Ten Championship game, that drive that Michigan State had in that fourth quarter to close it out. And, you know, talking a little bit about this drive, I was actually out at a my wife's law firm, their holiday um, dinner uh, was in Baltimore that night. And I remember I excused myself to, quote, use the restroom, but I was really trying to check the score of that game. And I saw that Michigan State had the ball with about nine minutes left in the game and they needed a touchdown. They were down by four, I think. And come back to the table, finish up dinner, start to leave, get our coats, look at the can- look at the TV screens behind the bar. Michigan State still has got still has the ball, and it's the same drive that's going on now. So now we're you know 15, 20 minutes of real time. We leave, we go to one restaurant or bar to have after dinner drinks. The drive is still going. We leave that bar, go to another bar. Drive is still going. I mean, this drive probably took about 45 minutes of real time. It was a 22-play drive. And putting that together, I when I was all said and done and I had broken down the film and broken down each play and written it up, I don't know if I walked away from that experience more impressed with Michigan State's offense and how they were able to execute that drive or Iowa's defense. Because this wasn't a situation where Michigan State had a couple of big plays and then, you know, missed a couple of incompletions or, you know, had a a one-yard loss on a run or something, but then, you know, made a couple more big plays to finish off the drive. This was 22 plays where they fought for every inch. And Iowa basically kept their base sort of defense in for that drive, didn't do a ton of substitution, and they made Michigan State earn every yard. I mean, they were fourth down conversions, one of which was – Connor Cook on a speed option with a bum shoulder, kind of sticking his right shoulder, the injured shoulder out and just barely picking up the first down. Even the touchdown run from LJ Scott hit basically at the line of scrimmage, bounces it to the outside. It gets hit by three more defenders and just barely ekes the ball to break the plane. It was 
just nine minutes of game time that kind of encapsulated exactly what I was trying to do with this book to show how a drive comes together and sometimes just how hard it is to score in the game of football. And, and this is, uh, again, I think this is probably, uh, you know, the, the the seminal chapter in this book. Obviously, there's a few more afterwards as we get into the, the playoff as well as the national championship game. But what you break down, whether you're talking about this chapter or the the other chapters in the book, you're not simply saying, okay, here's the formation and here's the pass they threw. It's, look, here's the personnel. Here's what the offense is trying to do. Here's why they're making these moves. And you really try to take us into the mind of the coordinator. Yeah, that's right. And it, again, it goes to the effort here and the goal here is to try to show readers that, you know, again, it's really hard to score. That other team on that defense on the other side of the football, they're doing everything they can to stop you. And they're pretty good, too, with a lot of great athletes on the other side of the football. So it goes to show you how teams try to attack a defense in a variety of different ways. I mean, we just finished the Michigan State talking about that game against Iowa and sort of the the pro-style, somewhat run-orientated offense that the Spartans use. There's a chapter in there from one of Baylor's games where five plays running up and down the field where they put a touchdown together. Um, so it just goes to show you the, the variety of schemes that teams can use and the different ways that they can attack a secondary in the passing game where they can attack a front in the run game. And, you know, there's a lot here for if you're a fan of blocking schemes and the offensive line, there's a lot of that in here as well. So I think there's something for football fans, college fans, casual fans, hardcore X's and O's people. Um, I think there's something in this for everybody. And like I said, I put a lot of work into it. The guys around me, you know, I've got a great team that I'm a part of here at Inside the Pylon. They all poured our heart and soul in this for basically two months because you couldn't really start this back in September. You would have had a lot of Ohio State chapters. Um, so we really kind of waited to identify, you know, core teams that were going to be part of the playoffs, get a look at the, you know, how the season came together. So we started cranking this in November and really plugged through it for two solid months to get this out. So when's the next one coming out? Oh, boy, man. I don't know. Um <laughs> I got to say, it was a thrill of a lifetime to put this together with the people that I get to work with every day on this. It's been just an absolute joy. Inside the Pylon has been an absolute joy to, to work on anyway, but to do something like this, it was a, great to be a part of it. So I'm excited to write the next one. I don't know what it's going to be or what it's going to be about, but there will definitely be a second book, especially if people buy the first one. Yeah, just uh, again, as always, make sure you read your contract because I think that you've got a uh, three. Don't I have like an eight book deal in there? Or something? It's it's three books with an option for another five that we is can that pick a, up. Is that a website option or a writer option? Uh, it's never a writer option. Oh boy! All right, so I guess I'm on the hook for at least four. Okay, you've got at Good least enough, a couple people. more coming. Get, but uh, if if anyone does want to go and pick that up, which hopefully every single person listening does, because I'll tell you, look, it's it's 320 pages. It's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, whether you are a casual football fan just looking to learn a little bit more, whether you are a hardcore X's and O's guys, it, it it's it's very accessible to the average fan here. Uh, it is available on our website at insidethepylon.com. There's a button right in the top menu for uh, 17 drives. You can click on that and buy it. It's also available uh, direct from amazon.com. Uh, it's priced at $14.99. And I think, you know, whether you're buying it for yourself, whether it's for a husband, wife, son, daughter, whoever it may be, look, there's, there's someone in your life who will appreciate this book. Check it out. It would really mean a lot to us. We've put an awful lot of time and effort into it. Uh, again, you can go to our website at insidethepylon.com. 
or go to Amazon.com right now. Just available in paperback at fourteen ninety nine. It will be out uh, within the next week or so in ebook form as well. Uh, we'll get you more information as we get that a little bit closer uh, to the release here. But Mark, uh, again, you know, outstanding job here, and, and I know uh, all of us at ITP are very, very proud of all the work that you've done on it. So, well, thank you, and thanks to all you guys again for all the hard work. But we got to move on, Chuck. We got our new segment. Uh, well, not a new segment, but our next segment actually um, with the Senior Bowl this week. With you and I heading down to Mobile, we've talked a lot about the quarterbacks and sort of my evaluation process. But Chuck, enlighten us. What should one look for and what do you look for when evaluating kickers? Big feet. Big feet? Feet measurement? No, hate, hate the foot measurement. What I, what I look for, and you know, a lot of people oftentimes, they, you know, they'll pull up the, uh, you know, the seniors on ESPN and they'll say, okay, who are the senior kickers with the highest accuracy? And they, they pull that up and they say, okay, these are the best prospects. And it's, you know, it's a little deceptive because especially in the college ranks, you don't necessarily see as many field goals as the NFL just because coaches in a lot of cases are reticent and reluctant to kick from great distance just due to the potential for a miss and giving away field position. So when I talk about the process for scouting kickers, it's you're looking – at two different pieces there, the first being, and the first I think the average person probably can't break down just because they don't have access, is the mental aspect. Because, you know, Mark, you're a golfer, and you know that if your mental game is not sharp in golf, you're going to have the ball going just about everywhere, probably if you're like me, off to the right quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, I got that hook to me. I can't, can't lose it, but yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Kicking is, is no different. It's, I, I try to draw the parallels between kicking and golf quite a bit because it's the same type of swing. It's the same type of overall approach. And the mental game is something that you have to be able to look at. Now, how I try to gauge that just from a distance. Well, look, you want to find games where a kicker has missed, you know, an easy kick, where he's missed a 30-yarder from dead center, where he's missed uh, a 35-yarder from the hash, where he's missed an extra point. And I want to see how he responds, how his mechanics respond after that. That's what I do just to try to get an early sense of what I'm looking at from a mental perspective because I could look at anyone who's having a perfect day and their mechanics are going to be clean, everything's going to look good, and there's no problems. I want to see a kicker after he's done something dumb, after he has made a mistake that he shouldn't make, I want to see how he bounces back with his mechanics the next couple kicks after that because that's, I think, a really critical way that you can tell what's going on inside a guy's head. How does he handle himself? Does he quicken his mechanics up because he's nervous? Does he manage to slow himself down and stay stay true to his mechanics? That's what I want to look for there. Is that kind of... You know, dovetailing off some of the things we've talked about at the inside the pylon with Dan Hatman, Matt Miller, looking at the context, it's one thing to say, you know, look at his accuracy stats and say, oh, that's not a good kicker. But when you get deeper and look at game situations, misses, how he bounces back, is that the importance of context when looking at kickers? I think so, because for for what I'm trying to look at, there's a big difference in a three for four day where a guy misses a 30 yarder early on and then makes a 40, 45, and 42 yarder after that, as opposed to a game where, look, maybe a guy makes his first three kicks and then has a horrible shank, you know, at the end, and you, you just you don't have a sense for how he's going to bounce back immediately in an in-game situation. So the the order of kicks when you're looking at this is almost as important as the overall outcome because you want to see how he bounces back there now. 
when you start talking about the physical aspect, generally I break it down into five different pieces. Okay, You've got your pre-kick setup. How well does he align himself with his target pre-kick? Does he take the exact same approach every time in terms of his steps back and over? I don't really care if a kicker does something uh, that's completely crazy during his approach, or during his setup rather, because as long as he does it every time, it's fine with me. It's it's just like it's very similar to golf. Look, if a guy has a, a crazy swing where you know it looks like you know there's arms and legs flying everywhere, as long as it works and the ball goes where it's supposed to, I'll generally be okay with it. But he's got to do the same thing every time. So I look for the same exact pre-kick setup, heading back, taking those three steps back, two over every time. The steps could be deep, they could be narrow, they could be long. As long as it's the same, I'm generally fine with it. Okay. We get into the next part, the approach. Is he using the same pace, the same tempo when he's approaching the ball? Just like golf, when you talk about uh, the tempo of a backswing and a downswing, I want to see the same general tempo of that approach there. It's key to see that because if you get too quick or too fast too, uh, you know, too often, you end up in a situation where your hips are flying one way or another and the ball goes where your hips are pointing. Okay. Next two kind of work hand in hand here, plant step. You want to make sure that you have the same plant step, the same uh, distance from the ball every single time, the same location relative to uh, where the ball is on your foot. Okay, There are some kickers that plant well ahead of the ball. There are some kickers that typically align the ball more towards the ball of their foot. A lot of people align it with the arch of their foot. But I want to see the same type of plant every time. And then coming off that, the same type of leg swing. Okay, uh, you know When we talk about leg swing, you can talk about the angle of it. Is it coming in steeply and coming in and really hitting down on the ball and getting it up quickly? Is it a flatter swing that doesn't necessarily generate as much height? Those are the types of things that I look for there. Height, especially once you transition to the NFL game, it's going to be a key thing. You talk about guys that you know are up on that line that are 6'5", that can jump and have you know the wingspan to be up 10 and a half, 11 feet. You need to be able to account for that and get the ball over the line of scrimmage there. And then I also look at the follow-through. Follow-through is the fifth area that I'm looking at. You just want to see, are they following through to the target? Is it consistent? And are they always moving through the ball the same way? That's how I look at a kick when I'm trying to break it down. Is the kind of crucial word here consistency? Like you, What you're really looking for is a guy that does the same over and over and over again. And using that golf analogy, the goal in golf is to just, if you can come up with a repeatable swing, is that what you're looking for with kickers? It is. And and look, in a, in a perfect world, I would love a kicker with an easy, clean swing that doesn't have a lot of moving parts to it, just because there's less to break then. But most kickers don't have the perfect swing. Most of them, you know, most of them have their own little wrinkles to it. Most of them have their own little, uh, you know, eccentricities. And, and you have to accept that that's going to be present. Just like when you look at quarterbacks, not everyone has the perfect textbook mechanical throw. But if they can make the same throw every time, you know, the same motion and generally get the ball out how they want to, it's, you know, that's, that's what I'm looking for from a kicker as well. I want to see the same thing repeated. I've said, look, a kicker, if he wants to, when he's taking his pre, pre-kick steps, he could do a backflip for all I care. And as long as it gets him in position to do the same thing every time, it's fine with me. Now, I don't think there's anyone who could actually do that, okay? But, you know, again, if, if you can do it and get it to the same point every time, that, that's what I'm looking for. Now, one thing I noticed was absent in your sort of five-step process was leg strength. Leg strength I, I use just to, you know, again, it's kind of one of those base things that you're going to look for 
you know, when you're looking at a kicker anyways. When I'm talking about trying to evaluate a kicker, I'm looking at is he going to be able to do this not just once, not just twice, but over an extended period of time. Leg strength, I think, is almost a pre- prerequisite for kicking in the NFL. These are the things. There's an awful lot of guys that have big legs in college. What I'm trying to look at is can they possess the mental game as well as the technique to be able to translate that leg strength into repeatable results at the next level? Because the other thing you got to remember, you're kicking a different ball in the NFL. You know, no one, no one can predict exactly how you're going to adjust to the NFL K ball because it's narrower than the uh, the college ball. It's harder than the college ball, and you know that's an adjustment that every kicker has to deal with. And so you want to see, okay, do they have the foundation to be able to deal with it? Leg strength. You look at that. You look at accuracy. You look at height. But really, those those develop out of the swing more than anything else. And, you know, one last thing before we move off of this, what about hash marks? Because they're different from the NFL to the college game. The college game, wider hash marks. I mean, is there part of your process that looks at, okay, well, he struggled with kicks from the right hash versus the left half in college, but he can clean that up when he gets to the NFL. Yeah, I mean, generally, when we talk about how hash marks affect a kick, you're talking about that pre-kick setup, which in a perfect world should align the kicker right with the center upright anyways. He shouldn't be taking uh, a straight-back approach necessarily. So from the right hash, you're going to be coming outside the right hash and then taking kind of uh, you know a little bit deeper setup than you would from the, uh, the center or the left just because of how you're aligning with that center upright. So generally... If, if a guy has trouble kicking from hashes in college, it may be cleaned up naturally by the, uh, by the approach, or rather by the, the narrower hash marks in, in the pro game. But remember that a kicker should be lining himself up dead center anyways. It shouldn't be a huge impact. And in general, you know, I don't, I don't put too much emphasis on looking at that from, on looking at, you know, necessarily short kicks from a college level just because you're not going to see those angles in the pros. So it. it's, uh, you know, that's kind of how I view it there. Um, let's go back. Well, I think we've done enough kicking. If Hopefully we still have listeners that are with us at this point. And they haven't I'm sure you know, we do, man. all I'm jetted sure we off. Do, people love them some Zada. Let's, uh, let's move now into the, uh, the one thing we do every week, which is the Harry Stamper All-Go Offensive Play of the Week. And I believe we're talking Panthers here, if I'm right. We are talking Panthers uh, in our Harry, Harry Stamper All-Go Offensive Play of the Week, brought to us this week by NASA, our first and original sponsor of this segment. Um, NASA, they're keeping an eye on the skies for us, and please keep doing that, guys. I am a white-knuckle flyer, and I have to hop on a plane in less than 24 hours, and I'm not too excited about it, so you know, keep that sky clear for me. Um, we are looking at the Corey Brown lawn touchdown in the NFC Championship game against the Arizona Cardinals. And Corey Brown is... Kind of the in that Carolina offense wasn't the biggest name this season for them, but he was a player that when I got a chance to look at Carolina going back through their tape in preparation for the NFC Championship game, kind of a guy that I thought might be an X factor for the Panthers in that game. And he sure was, at least on this play. This was, like I said, an 86 yard touchdown and the pre snap alignment. We just got done talking about it, talking about the 17 drives book. Carolina does something that they'd like to do. They get Greg Olson, their tight end, the single receiver on the left in a three-by-one set where they've got tight end to the left and three receivers to the right. Arizona uses sort of a cover-three scheme. Carolina runs that NCAA Mills concept, which is a three-receiver, three-route design where you have a deep post route, 
you know, shallow, you know, intermediate dig route, and then sort of an underneath drag sort of crossing pattern. And Brown runs that deep post pattern. Now, you think this would probably get covered first because that free safety, in this case is Jefferson, he's sitting in the middle of the field and he's going to cover that route, and he does, but return to another glossary term, Brown uses that dino stem. He breaks vertically, bends to the outside a bit to kind of show that potential corner route. Then when he breaks to the middle of the field, he, he basically gets Jefferson twisted in all sorts of the ways that won't help him on this play. Newton hits him in stride, and Brown is off to the races. He has to make one move on that backside corner, and you know, jukes him and it's a long touchdown and gives Carolina, I think at that point, a 17 nothing lead. You had written about uh, Corey Brown heading into this game and how he may be a potential X factor. What was it that you saw on earlier tape that suggested this type of performance could be uh, in the works? Well, it's interesting. When I first had the idea to really take a look at him um, in preparation for the NFC Championship game, I flashed back to a play in their divisional game against Seattle. It was just a deep comeback route that he was running against Richard Sherman and Seattle was kind of running a base, sort of their cover three look and Sherman showed press before the snap, but backpedaled a little bit. So he was showing cover three, um, but Brown really sold Sherman on that vertical route and then just stopped on a dime and broke back towards Newton angling towards the sideline on that deep comeback route. And Sherman took two, three, maybe even four steps vertically because he was so convinced Brown was going deep. And I thought, Watching that live and then looking at it again, it's like, man, that's that's impressive change of direction. So I went back and looked at some of the ways that they used him. And they used Brown in a number of different ways and a number of different passing concepts. Mills' concept where he's running the post route. Mills' concept where he's running the dig route over the middle. They even got him involved in something that Carolina likes to do a lot, that run-pass option game where they had him running a slant route on a sort of snag concept. So they used him in a variety of different ways. And when you add his ability to change direction on a dime like he did against Sherman, I just – thought to myself the more and more I saw it the more and more they're going to want to get him involved and they should want to get him involved and he had that, at least that one big play and a couple of other big plays in that game yeah he's definitely uh definitely has that quickness with uh he did have a punt return for a touchdown during his rookie year back in 2014 and uh we will definitely get to see more of him in about two weeks coming up in the Super Bowl but Mark that is our show for the day nice tight show I like it I like it and guess what what do we got when do I see you next, my friend? Oh, we're heading to Mobile tomorrow. We're headed to Alabama. We are heading to Mobile. So you'll be hearing from us the rest of the week from Mobile, Alabama. For Mark Schofield and Chuck Zada, we will be back tomorrow with our uh, regular Quick Kicks podcast. If you are not subscribed to it, make sure you subscribe to it on iTunes or your podcast player of choice, whether it's Overcast, whatever it may be. Uh, take whatever subscription service you have available to you. Subscribe so that you don't miss a day of that. We will see you tomorrow on the ITP Quick Kicks podcast.